So we're going to jump into our sermon tonight, and it is wonderful to be here, uh, to see all the different ones that are out here again tonight. God bless each one of you. I'm so glad that Brother Jesse is feeling better because we really have missed him. And But let's keep him in prayer that God will continue to strengthen him and um, just to help him get better quicker so uh, he can get right back into the saddle. Praise the Lord. And I'm so glad for Brother Jesse. I received uh, greetings this week again from uh, brothers in the other churches that send out their blessings and their greetings to us, and I just want to pass those all along to you. And if any of the brothers are listening to this later on, we greet you here in Jesus' name. God bless each of you. I got a really kind note from Brother Alphanes over in Norway this week. He sends his greetings to us. And Brother Solomon over in Israel, Brother Humes down in North Carolina. Uh, just the different ones around the world have been reaching out to us. They just pass their greetings and just been having good conversations also with some of the brothers and sisters up in Canada here recently. And I'm just so thankful that there are so many people who are supporting us in this little mission here who recognize the truth and are, are here to help us. And we're just going to keep pressing on. And I'm just so glad that people are waking up to the truth of the gospel and I remember when Brother Jesse read that scripture that if we forsaken houses and lands and friends and family for Christ's sake, God would give us back a hundredfold in this life. And I'm so thankful that we have found that to be true. We're not walking this path alone. Jesus is with us, and we've got lots of friends. Praise the Lord. And I thank God for that. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And Jesus is calling today to all those who are listening online, all of us sitting here, I know I've been a little surprised with the numbers that are watching online. It's certainly a lot more than are sitting here today. Uh, so I do want to take just a, a minute and make sure I do greet all those listening online. I hope you hear something that will be a help to you, that will strengthen your walk with Christ. My hope and prayer for you all is that you be established firmly in the peace and safety that can be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The arms of Jesus is a safe place, and he is enough. He is enough to save you. He is enough to keep you. and He is enough to keep me. And I'm so thankful that I can live a life of peace. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. And I know as we hold on to God's unchanging hand, he's going to see us through. When the storms come, whatever is battered to the ground was not of God. But what stands firm on the foundation, those things that are built upon Jesus Christ, they will stand. And when we hold to those things, we'll be carried through the storm. Praise the Lord. Amen. I know I've been so blessed this past week as I've had an opportunity to listen to some of my brothers preach their messages as well. Brother Jesse's been doing a wonderful series on the book of Malachi that he's been putting out. And Brother Jordan's just doing wonderful messages too. And if you haven't listened and you're looking for something to feed your souls, I recommend checking some of those things out. Amen. And I know uh, here shortly before service, somebody told me that <laughs> some people are so brainwashed that they deny, uh, they deny things that happen publicly, dozens of things that happen publicly. They say it never even happened, but we pray today that God will open the eyes of some and that people will realize that when people are telling them what happened in front of their very eyes and to the front of their very ears, telling them those things never happened, that they'll realize that the people that they're listening to are misleading them, are brainwashing them, and are leading them down a path of destruction. And if you can wake up and recognize that today, I say to you, wherever you are at, you need to either get control of the situation or you need to run for your life. Amen. Because people are dying as a result of these things. Not God putting a punishment on them, but men's actions leading people to death. And I hope, to goodness sakes, that people ask questions and actually wake up and realize what's been going on in their midst. Amen. And so anyways, if you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we will get into our message today. Romans chapter 1. We'll just start here at the top of the chapter. <clears throat> Here it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
which was made the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you once again for the privilege to, Lord, to know you, Lord, the privilege to gather together, the privilege to worship you and to hear your truth from the gospel, Lord, preached from the scripture. Lord, as we begin this study today, I pray that you will bless it, cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives. And Lord, we look for you to do that thing that only you can do, Lord. Lord, though I stand here and speak as a mortal man, yet you are able to speak to our hearts, O God. You're able to take your truth and put it into our hearts and understanding, Lord, by your Spirit. And Lord, I commit this all to you, and Lord, ask that you have your perfect way in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, it's been on my heart here for some time uh, to take several different topics, and you know, I've not really been sure just how to go about approaching it, to be honest. Uh, I just kind of prayed about it, and the past few years, you know, I've really kind of made a switch to more or less preaching in an expository form of preaching. When I read the Bible, I see that's the way Jesus taught, and I found it to be a very, very beneficial way to minister for a variety of reasons. And so I pray about maybe where to go and what to do to maybe get these topics across. And as I was praying and thinking about it over the past week or so, I realized that most of the topics I want to touch on are right in the book of Romans. And so I sat down this past week and just started to read the book of Romans, and I just loved it so much. And there's so many wonderful things in the book of Romans that I think will really help us as we look at it. And I'm not sure how long it will take, but Lord willing, I'm going to work my way through the book of Romans. It is a book that will lay our faith on a sure foundation. In the book of Romans, Paul, he lays out in beautiful detail the most important elements of our Christian faith. It's the most comprehensive explanation of the plan and purpose of God in Christ, the plan of salvation, the purpose of the church, the guidelines of Christian living, and the most comprehensive explanation that you can find in the New Testament. And Romans, it's not, a, it's not really a long book. It's just 16 chapters long, and a person can sit down and read the book of Romans in about an hour. So it'd be pretty easy just to sit down and, and read these things, but we're going we're gonna to actually expound on it a bit and look into it a little bit more deeply. You know, like most of the Bible, the book of Romans has been largely neglected in the places that we have come from. And the truth is, it's largely neglected because most people don't actually believe half of what is wrote in the book of Romans. And like so much of the Bible, people will perhaps pay lip service to it, but then in practical terms, they utterly neglect to actually obey what is written there. Or they'll use a verse here or there, maybe out of context, actually end up abusing the book of Romans in a way that would make the Apostle Paul weep and cry if he was here today. And of course, you might think I'm crazy when I say that, but it is. It's very true. And I'm not going to certainly point out each and every place that is true as we go through this book, but maybe as we start, let me just jump down here in chapter 1 to verse 16. I'll just read one example here uh, to show you what I mean. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, where we come from, this is not a verse of the Bible that we actually believed. Notice there it says the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, which would be us. But how many, many, many times did we hear it told to us, don't witness to the Jews? You can go back, you can listen to the sermons, and this here is a direct quote. They would say, the gospel is not for the Jews. Then they'd go on to explain that the Jews will get their portion in the week of Daniel, 
after the Gentiles. You know, they taught us that the gospel is not to the Jew first, it is to the Jew last. And that's one of the ways in which they were able to keep Jews out of the church in the past. And most of them still believe that way today. It's forbidden to witness the gospel to Jews in the churches that we came from. Amen. But my Bible says the gospel is to the Jew first. And whenever Paul went somewhere and preached, he always preached to the Jews first. He never left them out. And of course, where we come from, they had a very elaborate explanation to explain to us why those things no longer applied, why the gospel was no longer for the Jew first anymore. But you know, my Bible also tells me that Paul said, if anyone preaches another gospel different from what he already preached, let them be accursed. Paul taught that the gospel was to the Jew first, and if anyone who changed that, they should be accursed, according to the Bible. Yet the very people we left, they did exactly that. They took verses like this, which Paul preached, and they said, this is a verse that is not good anymore. The gospel was to the Jew first, but not anymore. They turned verses like 16 into something that is past tense, when the Bible tells us we're not allowed to turn a verse like that into past tense. You know, I wonder, I wonder why. Why didn't they want us to invite Jews into the church? I wonder why they commanded us to discriminate against the Jews when it came to sharing the gospel. Why weren't we allowed to do that? Where did that idea come from? Amen? Where did that come from? And you know, that's a very good question. Where did that come from? It's a very good question, but it's not one we're going to be answering today. But I hope you understand what I say when I say that a large part of what's in the book of Romans we did not actually believe, like this 16th verse. But instead, my focus today is back on these first seven verses that I read at the beginning. And I hope you understand what I mean now when I say that where we came from, we didn't believe half the things wrote in the book of Romans. And the sad thing is, it's true with many other books in the Bible, too. And I remember uh, my last few years preaching there, I just opened the Bible and I just taught what was in it. Verse for verse, chapter for chapter. And I think before I was over, half the church came to me telling me how they loved it, how they never even heard most of those things before. And it's because their preachers just don't preach the Bible to them. Amen? But praise God, this is a church where we are going to preach the Bible, the way it is wrote. Amen? Not the way we want to twist it around to fit our agendas. And I pray that God would be so gracious to us to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and help us to get back to a true scriptural understanding on these topics. But since we're talking about the Roman church, I do think it's fair to remind us that Rome was not built in a day. And our understanding is not made whole in a day. And I do want everyone to feel encouraged just to let the Holy Spirit lead and guide you into understanding of truth. You know, because really a preacher can't do that. It's not the preacher's job to lead you in understanding of truth. It's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. Amen. I can't give you an understanding of truth, but I can preach what God lays on my heart, and I can teach what's in the Bible to the best of my ability, and I can pray that God opens our understanding and that his Holy Spirit, which is in each and every one of you, will bring you a true understanding. Amen? So let me come back to these first seven verses and maybe let me read them again here. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a, a beautiful opening in this letter here to the Romans. 
just a beautiful, beautiful opening to this book. Amen. And maybe as we go into it and talk about it a little bit tonight, perhaps we could uh, just take a little time to talk about what the Roman church was like. This church he's writing to, who, who are they? Where are they? What are their circumstances when they get this letter? Let's just talk about that a little bit maybe before we, we start diving into just what these verses uh, mean that we've read. You know, as Brother Jesse said this morning, the people of the Bible are real people. They're people, just like you and I are people. The people in the church at Rome were real people living in a real place, living real lives with real problems and facing real situations, the same kinds of circumstances that you and I faced in different ways. And the reason the Lord allowed the stories in the Bible to be recorded about real people is so that you and I, as real people, could look at them, could read the stories, and could relate to what we see in the Bible and learn lessons from their examples. And so in this first introductory message to this topic, I do want to take a few minutes to help us understand what it was like for people who were part of the church at Rome. And there may be some different aspects that you and I can relate to, you know, the city of Rome was the largest metropolis in the whole world at that time. It was the center of the Roman Empire. It had a population of over one million people. You know, I, I really enjoy reading history, and Roman history is a topic I've loved to learn a lot about. And Rome was just an amazing city in, in, in architectural terms. You know, 2,000 years ago, it had high-rise buildings, seven, eight, some even up to ten stories tall. And really, if we look at the early church, we find that the early church was an urban church, a city-dwelling church primarily. The early church of the Bible was mostly located in the large cities of the Roman Empire. And you know, that makes a lot of sense because cities were where the most people were at. And if you want to get a message to the most people, you go where the most people are at, right? And the gospel that Paul, he's talking about in these verses is, is something that's been very appealing to the people who are living in these cities. You know, the people in the days of Rome, a lot of them were people who were down and out. And the message of hope and of freedom, of salvation and forgiveness, it was a message that resonated with many people. The gospel was a message that met these people where they were at. And in the days of Paul, you know, up to 20% of the population in that day was slaves. A huge percentage of the population were living in slavery. And 80 to 90% of the rest were living in just abject poverty. You know, life expectancy. Think about this. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire was 33 years old. <laughs> you know, almost all of us here today would be dead if we were living in Roman times. Because the odds are we would have been dead by 33 Besides that, you know, Rome was also a police state. Most people had very few rights. If you refused to worship the emperor as God, or even if they caught you talking bad about the government, or even if someone just accused you of that and you was innocent, you would disappear really quickly, and the government would execute you or sell you into slavery or punish you. You know, Caligula... Tiberius, they were the emperors in these days when the book of Romans was wrote down. And they had passed different laws so that they could arrest you and kill you for just about anything you did. Any reason they wanted, they could get a hold of you. The, the law had been wrote so broadly, it, it literally said this, if you impugned the dignity of Rome, you were guilty of treason. And that law was so broad that they could just say anything you did impugn the dignity of Rome. You wore your hat the wrong way. <laughs> your shoes are on the wrong. Whatever they wanted to do, they could easily condemn anybody for treason. It was a, a very harsh world to live in. And living here today in America, in some ways, it's hard for us to even imagine what life in Rome was like in that respect. Because Roman Christians probably had a lot more in common with Christians like China today than with us and that environment that they were living in. Amen. And if they got caught or doing something they shouldn't do, and Christianity was a banned religion, they could be executed on the spot, sold into slavery. That's what, that was what the penalty was very easily 
meted out for Christians in that day. But on a moral level, you know, we probably do have a lot more in common with the people of Rome. And on the, the moral level, Roman society was down in the dumps. You know, the emperor had a palace that was full of prostitutes. And that was legal everywhere. And most of the empire were Greek-speaking, and they had inherited many of the traditions from ancient Greece. Public nudity was commonplace. The practice of homosexuality was widespread. And even worse, child molestation was openly practiced by the same people. And society saw that as something that was entirely normal. Every city had a temple to their pagan deities. And the way they tended to worship their gods was with festivals characterized by drunkenness. The whole crowd engaged in immorality together. And their festivals featured violent and deadly gladiator fights and mass executions. It was a bloody, it was a gory, it was an immoral society in the extreme. And the way people dressed was something else too. The most popular clothes for the rich women of Roman society was silk, imported from China. And they loved it not only because it was so soft, but because it was so thin. It was so sheer you could see right through it. And it wasn't uh, an uncommon thing to walk through the streets of the city of Rome and see both men and women wearing transparent clothes down the street if they were rich enough to afford that style. So I hope I may be painting a picture of Roman society to you. It was a level of debauchery and cruelty beyond anything you and I have probably ever seen or experienced. And the society that most Christians live in today is a much better place than it was in the days of Paul and of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to understand what Roman society was like at that time when Paul writes this letter. Because it puts in context the things that he writes in it. He's writing this to a people who are even more or just certainly as morally depraved as the society we live in. Just as evil, just as wicked and probably more so than the society that we live in. And the Roman Empire, certainly by any standards that you and I would use to judge it, the Roman Empire was a terrible place to live, worse than just about anywhere in the entire world today. And the wickedness of their society was much greater, much greater than the communities where you and I live in today, certainly here in Indiana. But there in the midst of that terrible, that wicked and evil society, and right next to the very beating heart of their corrupt empire, there was a group of people who was different from the rest. There was a group of people who, although they were living in the Roman Empire, their allegiance was to a different kingdom. Although they were surrounded by a kingdom of death and corruption and wickedness, they were actually part of a kingdom of light and of love and of life and of purity. The church of Jesus Christ was living right alongside the rest of that Roman society. And in fact, as we read this epistle, it seems like a lot of the early Christians were slaves to the leaders and powerful people in that corrupt society. In many respects, Christianity was flourishing among the people who were the victims of the evil society that they were living in. Those were the people that Christianity appealed to the most, the people at the very bottom, the ones who had been stepped on and walked on and mistreated and abused. The gospel appeals to people like that. And it's to these people that Paul writes this letter of Romans. Amen? As you know, when you have an evil society, when you have a corruption like that, there's always people that find their way on the bottom. The people that get walked on by everybody else, abused and mistreated. Amen? Every place, every society, every culture that has evil of that magnitude, it always produces an element that's at the bottom that is the dirt on the ground that everybody else walks over. That is the people that the gospel found root in, in the city of Rome. Amen. And don't be surprised that those are the same people that the gospel tends to find root in even to this very day. Amen. 
And that's the people that Paul is writing this letter to. And you know, it's a miracle that this church in Rome even exists. In the midst of all of that evil and all of that turmoil and all of the cruelties of that empire, a church had sprung up right in the very heart of it. And you know, God works wonders. He does things people would say are impossible. In places where someone would say it's impossible that a church could ever spring up in a place like that, God can plant a church there just to poke his finger in the eyes of his detractors. God can do something like that just to prove he is God and that he is sovereign and that he will redeem himself a people even from the most corrupt and most wicked place on the earth. Amen. And that's what he was doing right there in that city of Rome. He was planning a church that was going to be a witness of Jesus Christ before the most powerful, the most wicked, the most cruel, most murderous, most evil people in the whole Roman Empire. And you know, what was happening all over the Roman Empire was this very same thing. Throughout their corrupt society, a change was happening. And it started out small. It started out with just a little group here and a little group there. But then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, today the Roman Empire is collapsed and gone. But guess what is still here? The church. The Roman Empire is long gone, but the church is here, and it is alive, and it is well. The church outlived the Roman Empire. The church outlived all the empires that came after. The church outlived the Soviet Union. The church outlived the Nazis. The church has outlived all the evil regimes of the past, and the church will outlive all the evil regimes of the present. And that should put some joy in our hearts because it lets us know that God has got this thing under control. The church will outlive whatever conditions or situations we see around us today. Amen. Now just how this church in Rome got started, we don't exactly know. We know that somewhere along the way, Priscilla and Aquila had been in Ephesus with Paul and they had been in Rome. And somewhere people in Rome had started to come to faith in Christ. And the Bible and history don't tell us just exactly how that happened, but somewhere before Paul wrote this letter to Rome, a group of Roman people had come to faith in Christ. And that's what a church is. People who have come to faith in Christ. It don't mean there was actually a church building there where they all got together and worshipped, because that was actually illegal in Rome. It was illegal in Rome to build a church building and all get together and worship. Jews and Christians both were forbidden in these years from even having gatherings in the city of Rome. So whatever group was there, whatever meetings they had, these things had to be going on there with some secrecy. You know, sometimes a little secrecy is called for when doing things for the good of the church. Because sometimes information can cause problems if it hits the wrong ears. If the Roman government found out where the Christians were having all their services, they probably would have come, arrested them, sold them into slavery, or worse. There was a day when to go to church like this meant that might be the last day that you live. But through it all, that little church of people in Rome growed and prospered in the Lord. That little group of people in Rome were a triumph of the gospel. Their church was a display of the power of God. And as we read here, it was a source of joy to the Apostle Paul. I certainly believe we can detect that even as we just read these verses that I read already. And I find that to be encouraging. You know that? Because these facts are very applicable to us. The church at Rome is proof that the church can flourish in the most wicked and evil of societies. It's proof that the church can be planted and grow in very difficult environments. Amen. That comforts me. That helps me. That makes me feel good. It lets me see the sovereignty of God. Let me go back now to these verses I've read, and maybe we'll just take a little time now to, to go through them now that we've set the context of what this church was like that Paul's writing to. In verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant 
of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. As Paul opens up this letter, writing to the people we've been describing in Rome, Paul presents himself to this church as a servant, someone who is there to help, someone who is there to work and to labor and to complete a task. That's what servants do. And he lets us know what this task is. And it's a task that he's been separated to do. And separated here is a big word for Paul. Paul has left behind and separated himself from many things in order to do this task. He left behind family. He left behind friends. He left behind loved ones who rejected him when he found Jesus. He left behind his benefits of his first-class education in the best school that Jerusalem had to offer. He left behind his job and his career. He left behind his power, position of power in the authority there in that Jewish religion. He left behind the comforts of home to set out on the road to preach the gospel from town to town. He left behind the safety and security of his community to go out and preach to people who were going to stone him and beat him and eventually kill him. Paul was separated. And those are some of the things he was separated from for the work that he was to do. And what was that work he was to do? What was that task he was completing as Christ's servant? The servants of Christ don't just have any old random mission, but we have a mission that has been given to us directly by Jesus Christ. And that mission is recorded in Scripture. That mission is spreading the gospel. It was the purpose for which he had been called and separated. And it was his function as the servant of Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, Paul tells us something about this gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture. This gospel which Paul was preaching, he hadn't grabbed it out of thin air. It was not based on nothing. His belief in it and his strong faith that it was true had not originated by a whim. Paul had, he had an experience, we know that, where Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him from heaven. And when that happened, there were plenty of other witnesses around who heard that voice speak to him from heaven too. We know that. You know, it wasn't a hoax as we've learned has been the case with other men told us they heard a voice from heaven. But with Paul, as he talks about the manner in which he was called and the proof on which he based his faith, he didn't go to his Damascus Road experience. He went here to something else as his first line of evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was the prophets of Holy Scripture. This gospel he was sharing had been foretold by the prophets. And you could read Isaiah 53, you could read Moses, you could read Jeremiah or Zechariah or on and on. They had all foretold the coming of Jesus Christ. But they also foretold what the gospel itself would be. Did you know that? The prophets of old actually foretold what the gospel teaching itself would be, just exactly what it was. And Paul's faith and understanding of what the gospel was was not based on things he had heard from other men. You know, he tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it was ultimately not even based, his hope, his belief in these things ultimately not even based on the miraculous thing that happened on the Damascus Road. But his faith and his understanding of what the gospel was and who Jesus was and just what all he did meant, that came from God who opened his understanding through the scriptures. Like he mentioned right there briefly in verse 2 that we just read. You know, and let that be a lesson to us today. Paul's faith and understanding of this gospel came from what was wrote in Scripture. And that is solid ground where we can place our faith. 
And besides the scriptures themselves, Paul also had another witness about this gospel. Amen. Once he knew and established who Jesus was, Jesus' words then had authority. And Jesus himself was a witness. As you read verse 3, he goes on to point here, another witness. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh, as the prophets foretold, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know, in what we're looking at in this message, I think verse 4 here is perhaps the most impactful to me of these verses. Because here Paul says something that is a really interesting statement to me. He says things like this in other places too. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. And he points to something very specific which vindicated Jesus Christ. Something very specific which declared that Jesus was the Son of God. Or you might say proved who he was. And that proof that he was the Son of God was his resurrection from the dead. Amen. And that is critical to our faith. It was critical to Paul's faith. And this is a point that I want to try and and make it as clear as I can for us because it's something that's been seriously overlooked by some. You know, you can read over and over again in the Scripture and you'll see that the resurrection of Jesus is the starting point for proving Jesus was who he said he was. You know, don't, we don't have a faith in Jesus that is based on nothing. We have a faith in Jesus that is based on evidence. Just like Paul had a faith in Jesus that was based on evidence, the kind he's talking about here in these verses. And there's powerful evidence to this very day that can be used to prove Jesus Christ rose from the grave and was resurrected. Our faith in Jesus is based on infallible proofs that he gave when he was here on earth. And the climax of all of it was his resurrection. You know, that's something that's impossible to fake. The way he died, the manner it all happened, he was buried with soldiers keeping him from his body from being stolen, the way he rose from the grave, you know, you can't fake that. You can't fake that. And to cap it all off, the prophets had foretold it would all happen. Amen. Let me maybe just put a few verses with what I'm saying. If you want to turn over to Acts chapter 1, just take a few verses there. Acts chapter 1. The former treatise. Now here Luke is talking about the, the book of Luke, which he wrote. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, That's the man he's writing the book of Acts to. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he had through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God amen you see Jesus gave infallible proofs to the apostles to the disciples in that hour many infallible proofs there is no question whatsoever that he was who he said he was He was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people after he resurrected from the grave. And many of those hundreds of people also watched him literally ascend up into heaven in the sky and disappear in a cloud of glory. And we have those people's eyewitness testimonies wrote in the Bible. Not just one or two, but multiples. And they give the dates and the times and the locations and the other things that were going on. And you know, you can take that all back to history. You can take it all back and all of the facts check out. All of the details and the facts in the Bible check out. They're all true. It all matches up to history. The things told in the Bible are backed up not just by the Bible, but by others too. The Jews also recorded about Jesus in their records. The Romans also recorded about Jesus in their records. 
The historians who lived in that day and in that time also recorded about Jesus in their records. And the people who were opposed to Jesus, think about that, the people who were opposed to Jesus also recorded his life and his deeds in their records. And it's not just from the Bible that we can see that Jesus was born and lived and his life and everything. But we can see that the truth of what is in the Bible is even confirmed by the histories and the writings of Jesus' enemies. The proofs of his ministry were so strong that others recorded them down too. Amen. And it took those infallible proofs that Jesus did in his ministry that even his enemies had to acknowledge. It took those infallible proofs for people to believe. It took infallible proof for Thomas to believe. And he was not the only one. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, all of the apostles gave up hope and ran away and went to hide. And until an infallible proof appeared in the room and ate dinner with them and then disappeared through the wall, they didn't believe. That's what it took, that kind of infallible proof to convince them that Jesus had rose from the dead and that he was who he said he was. Amen. And Luke said, like Luke said, Paul, he said, the resurrection was the greatest of those proofs. Amen. Luke is saying the same thing Paul did. And in the days of the apostles... People were justified for asking for infallible proofs. Jesus did not rebuke Thomas. Jesus did not rebuke the others who sought these infallible proofs. Amen. Jesus is willing to give us proof if we'll trust and look for it. Amen. He loves us that much. Amen. And today we are equally justified. You're justified. Amen. In asking questions and looking for the proofs. The people who tell us we have to believe things without infallible proof to back them up, those are dangerous people. Those are people who do not have faith. Those are people who have foolishness. And they've twisted the Bible to tell you that blind faith is real faith. But blind faith is not the kind of faith Jesus wanted us to have, which is why he gave infallible proofs. But sadly, that is exactly the kind of faith so many people have. Amen. But true faith seeks understanding. True faith seeks to make sense of the object of our faith. Amen. Hallelujah. And faith that does not seek understanding, and faith that does not seek to make understanding of the object of our faith, is not faith. It is foolishness. Amen. And let me give you another verse to demonstrate. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. There's a whole lot of foolish people in the world. A whole lot of people that proclaim themselves to be wise, but when confronted with facts and reality, they prove themselves very foolish. Very foolish. Their wisdom evaporates in a second. Amen. They deny the things right before their very eyes. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me ask one question here. I've got a nice crowd here. We went somewhere not too long ago, a place we used to go, and a preacher rebuked a widow from the platform for grieving. He called her out by name. He rebuked her before the entire congregation. He said it's time to get over it. Her husband had been dead, no, maybe a year and a half at that point. Now, I want everybody here to raise your hands if you remember that happening. Every single hand in this place is raised. Amen. Hallelujah. I've got multiple people here in this congregation that were baptized as young people at Faith Assembly. Young boys. Let's raise our hand, everybody that's here, that got baptized at Faith Assembly and wants to confess that some things that were recently said about that, that's true. Let's raise our hand if that's true. Amen? Every hand of every person in this church who was baptized as a young person at Faith Assembly, raises their hand. Amen? Praise the Lord. People, though, will deny the truth. Even the people that were in the very room when it happened will deny the truth of these things. You know why? Because something's wrong in them. An inability to accept truth. They would rather accept blindness 
They would rather accept blindness, amen. And even when unusual, mysterious deaths happen in their midst on a continual pattern, nobody even questions why. Something's seriously wrong. People need to wake up. People need to wake up before more people are hurt and more people are killed. Amen. Someone needs to wake up. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Jesus is calling. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. In Jesus' name, wake up. Hallelujah. Ask questions. Find answers. Find the truth. Amen. Come back here to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. The resurrection was proof of who Jesus was. It's proof of where our faith begins. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 and 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. And this is just one here. This verse is just one of multiple places where Paul gives this explanation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our hope and our faith. And the resurrection, it's a starting point for us to understand our faith and to make sense of it. Because the resurrection proved by the power of the resurrection that there is life after death. You know, when Jesus resurrected to the apostles and he was witnessed by hundreds of people after he resurrected from the dead, that proved there's life after death. It proved that Jesus had the power to redeem what had fallen, his body. He proved he had power over death and he proved he was the promise, Messiah of Scripture. Amen. But if Christ be not risen, all our preaching is in vain. All our faith would be in vain if the underlying facts of our faith turned out to be true. Paul was willing to say out loud, then it would all be worthless. You know, if the resurrection turned out to be a hoax, Christianity is vain, says Paul. Amen. And when the foundation upon which something has been built upon, proves out to be false, then all the faith that is built upon it and all the preaching that is built upon it is vain. But if Christ be not risen, all our preaching is in vain because it was all built on that. Our faith is based on facts and evidence and things that really did happen. Amen. And it is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead and there is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And those facts and that evidence exists to this very day. Hallelujah. And when we investigate it, and we find nothing to disprove it, amen, and we find lots of strong evidence that it did happen, hallelujah, we're safe and assured and believing in it. Amen. The facts align with our faith. Praise the Lord. And now, turning back here to Romans chapter 1, As we see there in verse 4, there was a proof that declared Jesus to be the Son of God. An infallible proof. And that is why we believe. And to believe without that proof would be foolishness and stupidity. Paul said so himself. Paul said so himself. And you and I, we are completely justified in asking for evidence if we're being asked to build our faith on something, and those who cannot provide that evidence are not justified in asking you to put faith in something for which they do not have evidence. Amen. All the teachings here in the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus, we have proof that we can base that on. And it's because we can prove that Jesus was who he said he was. We can prove that he had authority. Amen. And the words he came had authority because of who he was. Amen. And what we have in our hearts is not foolishness. It is faith. It's real faith. Hallelujah. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing the word of God. Amen. 
not the words of man. Because if it turned out just to be the words of man, there's no faith that can be built on it. Only foolishness can be built on it. Amen? And I'm afraid some of what we used to have faith in, that's exactly what it was. It was just foolishness. But because it was based on the words of man, which we thought at the time was the word of God. But when we got down to it, the proof that it was the word of God turned out just to be an illusion. And there is no proof. There is only legends and myths which we can prove were false beyond a shadow of a doubt. And to continue going on believing in those legends and those myths and those hoaxes and using them as a basis for our faith would be the height of foolishness. Amen. And a lot of people, as I said before, who've proclaimed themselves so much to be wise have actually been exposed to us as the foolish. The foolish. I'm afraid that's what a lot of people have built their so-called faith on. They built on sinking sand, which is why we can say that they have no faith, they only have foolishness. And don't be fooled, faith in lies is not faith. Faith in myths and legends is not faith. No matter how strong and how powerful and how whatever it is, how strong that so-called faith is, faith in things like that are not true faith. It's a delusion. It is foolishness. Amen. And the people doing that need to wake up in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Wake up and see Jesus and get away from the delusions. Amen. With Jesus, we have infallible proofs. And the resurrection is first among those proofs. Verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the resurrection itself, those things declared to us that Jesus was who he said he was. Amen. And he is the one we are serving. And he is the one who gave the church its mission. Amen. When we find that the prophecies and the scriptures we had told were been fulfilled, had not actually been fulfilled, then we would be justified in not believing. Amen. Because it's based on a true fulfillment of things. Hallelujah. And Paul and the apostles had proof that scripture had been fulfilled, establishing Jesus for who he was. And as I said, he is the one we are serving and he is the one who has given the church its mission, Jesus. And he records Paul this mission again in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Amen. This is the command that Jesus gave the apostles before he ascended to heaven. This is the task that Jesus gave to the church to fulfill. Preach Jesus to all nations. Make disciples of all men. The very thing which the places we have come from have utterly fallen away from. They have long since failed to obey the words of Jesus. They've long since shut themselves off and entered into open disobedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. But as we read here, Paul was dedicated to obeying the command of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the task that Paul was separated for. This is the task, amen, that the church is separated for. Amen. And to fail to pursue this task, hallelujah, to make it second place, to even completely take it off your radar, is to utterly, utterly turn your back on the highest command given by Jesus Christ. Amen. Obedience to Christ. Amen. And obedience to his great commission is what behind, was behind Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Amen. Because he was dedicated to obeying Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 6. Among whom ye are also called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You know, I'm going to bring my message here to a close tonight. And you and I today, we, in some ways, we're like the church of Rome. Like the church in Rome, we may not have been planted in what seems like the most hospitable environment. But for such a time as this, we're coming to the kingdom. And for this season of time, we will fulfill what the Lord has showed us to do. Hallelujah. We're called of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're appealing to people today in Christ's stead. Come back to Jesus. Amen. And run away from the man and man that has taken you away to another gospel. Come to Jesus. Come back to him. He's calling you. Amen. And there's a song, he knows my name. And that's true. He knows our name and he has called our name. He is calling your name today if you are listening out there. Jesus is calling to you. Amen. We're not been called by a preacher. We've not been called by a prophet. But we've been called by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's Him that you owe your allegiance to. It's Him that you owe your salvation to. It's Him that you owe your obedience to. Not to man, not to deceivers, not to deceivers of all manner that lie and put you into bondage. Amen. Your loyalty is to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. We are the called of Jesus. He has called us. Amen. And all of our hope and all of our faith rests in him. And we have every reason to put our faith and our trust in him. And we don't need another mediator between us and God as some men do. We are saved by faith in Christ and Him alone. And we can go in the rapture by faith in Christ and Him alone. And the fact that others refuse to admit that that is the truth, that actually betrays the fact that they do not believe that Jesus is good enough. And because they do not believe Jesus is good enough, they are in serious trouble. And if they're teaching you that Jesus is not good enough, and you swallow that, you are in serious trouble. Amen. Those men have actually revealed that they have rejected the gospel and traded it for another because they can't say Jesus Christ is good enough and faith in him alone is good enough to take you in the rapture. They have to add a whole lot of things to it in order to get you there. Amen. That is another gospel, and that is rejection of the true gospel. And today you and I are capable of seeing clearly because our Savior has saved us. Not just from sin and not just from hell, but He has saved us from confusion. He saved us from the bondage of false religion. And that is true, Babylon. Confusion of false religion. We're free from Babylon today. Amen. And He's put a strong confidence in our hearts and a powerful understanding that liberates us. Amen. Jesus is enough to save us. Jesus is enough to keep us. We believe that, and they do not. And let that be the line that divides us. Hallelujah. And if anyone here in this message today should wonder or have questions, let me finish by telling you that Jesus is the way. If you follow him, you will make it. Jesus is the truth. If you believe him, that's enough truth to make it. And Jesus is the life. He is the life to live. He is the one to pattern yourself after. And he's the one who will give you eternal life. Hallelujah. No one else. And if you have that, Jesus has promised to you, he's going to come back personally to get you and take you to heaven one day. You can read it in John chapter 14. I believe Jesus and you can trust the words of Jesus. Hallelujah. Deceivers come and go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. Lord, it was painful. It was hard, Lord. It was not easy, Lord. We had to pass through the fire. We had to pass through the flood. 
But Lord Jesus, you preserved us. And here we stand today full of your spirit, full of your grace, Lord. Fired up, Lord, with the strength of the fire that you've put in our hearts. Hallelujah. Lord, you are our strength. You are our inspiration. We bow down before your cross. We worship you for your greatness. Lord, let each of and every one of us fix our eyes steadfast on you. Let it be, Lord Jesus. Lord, I'm sorry for the days, Lord, when I let men diminish you. Lord, I'm sorry for the days when I let men obscure you. Lord, but as long as you give me strength and grace, Lord, I will ever lift you up, the author and the finisher of my faith. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen.